Well, let's take our own copies of God's Word and find our way to the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 1. It's right after Matthew. Mark begins with these simple words. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Well, this morning we are going to begin a journey, actually a guided tour of the life of the most important person who ever lived, the God-man, Jesus Christ. We're going to do so by allowing our guide to be Mark. Now, the question you should be asking, and in fact, I've been asked this many times over the last few months since we announced it, why are we studying Mark? First of all, of all 66 books, why this one? Of all four Gospels, why this one? Why study Mark? We just spent five years in the book of Romans. Why turn our attention to another 16-chapter book? Why spend the next couple of years, I think it's going to take us, Sunday after Sunday to devote attention to the same book of the Bible? Well, it's very simple. Jesus of Nazareth is the most interesting and amazing person to ever live. And seeing him from Mark's quill is to simply be amazed. If Christ is amazing, what do we need to do to be amazed? Mark will help us answer that question. He wrote for us to become, I love this word, bedazzled with Christ. It's interesting as we begin this that no other book in the Bible has garnered as much tension as to how the book begins and how the book ends than the same book, the Gospel of Mark. It has a very abrupt beginning, and as we'll see, it has a very abrupt and controversial ending. Both its beginning and its ending have been debated in so much scholarship. Matthew and Luke, for example, begin the story of Jesus at his birth and John, not to be outdone, starts in eternity past with looking at Christ. Again, his pre-existence. And Mark simply opens by saying, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And he doesn't start with the beginning of Jesus' life. You would think if he says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the next verse would say there was Joseph and Mary, and he doesn't. And the ending of the book of Mark, as much has been written on that, um, in fact, if you piled everything up that was written on the ending of book, the book of Mark, you would sink a battleship if you put it on. Why is Mark, Mark? Why do we have this book why is he so lean and so short and so sparse? Especially about details that Matthew and Luke and sometimes John go into great detail about. Why is he thin on the details? I think as we develop this book, you're going to discover exactly why he is so sparse. Now, let me encourage you to read the Gospel of Mark. Drum roll. In one sitting, if you can, or a couple. It takes about 90 minutes. It took me 82 minutes in one sitting to read it. And I, re I read slowly. Take the time to read it as a unit, as good news, as an announcement. Read it in a couple. Read it in three sittings. Read it and see what the Holy Spirit does in your heart by just simply hearing from the pen of Mark. It's fast-paced. It pulsates with energy and urgency. In fact, compared to the other Gospels, it feels raw. It feels almost unedited, like, well, well, maybe someone should have proofread this first, Mark. You're jumping from one thing to another. He over and over and over uses the word immediately, immediately, immediately. He's in a hurry. It's almost like he's saying, hurry up and listen. And in fact, when you begin the, the first verse all the way up to the last week of Jesus' life, it's almost like he's in a hurry to get to that week. 
He tells nothing about Jesus' birth, nothing about his early life. And compared to Matthew and Luke, even John, Mark recounts actually very few of the Lord's teachings and discourses. Long chapter, long sections like the Sermon on the Mount, absent. Only Cliff Notes versions in some sense. When you read Mark, in fact, you get more of what Jesus did than what he said, whereas Luke and Matthew provide far more of what he taught than what he did. As I said, it feels like Mark is in a hurry when he's writing. He's urgent. But don't let the, these distinctives fool you. Mark tells us what Jesus did for some specific purposes. The historical events he records are dense, they're rich, and he tells them with a compressed, pithy, synthesized style for a significant set of purposes that I think will unfold as we begin studying this book. Now, for our study this morning, what I want to do is take the time to just set the table for the banquet feast. We're not going to dive in, but we have to get our orientation. It's like walking in as a freshman in, in your first year of college, and, and all, all, all is new. You don't, you don't really understand where the hallways are or where the classrooms are. You, you're walking in fresh. That's why they call you a fresh man. And this is the orientation you have to sit through to go to school. Well, we need to be oriented this morning. So what I want to do is simply ask along with you four important questions to answer for beginning our study of Mark. Four important questions to answer for beginning our study of Mark. It's just not good to drop in like a parachute at night and try to figure out where you are. Let's get some orientation points. First question we want to ask is this, who is Mark? Who is Mark? Well, Colossians 4.10 tells us that Mark is the cousin of the preacher and missionary we follow in the book of Acts named Barnabas. It's his cousin. And like many other people in the New Testament, Mark, Mark has several names. He goes by several names. Sometimes he's called John. Sometimes he's called Mark. And sometimes he's called John Mark. And it's all the same person first time we hear of Mark in the book of Acts, he's actually just a reference as the son of his mother Mary, not those Marys you're familiar with. Peter is imprisoned for preaching the gospel, and after he's miraculously rescued by the angels, remember the chains fall off, and the angel escorts him out, the door of the gate opens, and they walk through, and then the angel disappears, and Peter realizes that something happened. In fact, Acts 12, 12 says, when Peter realized that he'd been rescued, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who is also called Mark, where many gathered together there and were praying. Now, there's a lot of insight in there. Mark's mom was known as a place to go for a prayer meeting. Mark had obviously come from a family that had already embraced the gospel, that understood the persecution. The, it was a gathering place. People know to go to Mark's mom's. It just tells us something of his family associations. Then we meet Mark in the book of Acts at the beginning of Paul's first missionary journey. Now, our first glimpse of Mark is a good one. He's a pioneer missionary, he's on the A team, he's a starter. He just returned from helping his cousin Barnabas with a humanitarian visit to, to Jerusalem. Remember, there was a famine. He helped deliver some money and food to Jerusalem in Acts 11, 29, and 30. And now he goes along with Paul on his first missions trip to Salamis. Now, if you want to follow along, I think this is important. Turn to Acts chapter 13 for a moment. And what we're going to do is stitch some things together to understand who Mark is because it, it takes a few passages to kind of come together to get a full picture. Acts chapter 13. This is the first missionary journey. And as I said, Mark is on the A team. He made the cut. Acts chapter 13. Let's pick it up in verse five. 
When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Now, a little footnote, we always know that when Paul starts his, his missionary uh, adventures in, or ventures rather, in uh, each city he goes to, the first place he goes is where? The synagogue. And how does that work out for him? Never well. Even when God tells him, I've appointed you as a missionary to the Gentiles, he still goes first to the synagogues when he enters the city. Let's see how this one goes in his first venture. The end of verse five, it says, they also had John. That's our friend Mark. That's John Mark. As their helper. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with, his, with the proconsul, Sergius, Paulus, a man of intelligence. Now, there's a lot going on here. He's a false prophet, found his way into the influential people and circles in the area. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. You have these leaders who are interested in the gospel, and this guy thinks he's going to lose his influence, so he starts his manipulation. But Saul, who is known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze upon him. Now, verse 10 and following is important because Mark is watching this. This is Mark's introduction into his missionary experience. Look at the confidence and courage of Paul. And he said, verse 10, you are full of all deceit and fraud. You son of the devil. That's a nice welcome. You enemy of all unrighteousness. Will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Verse 13. Now Paul and his companions put out the sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. But John, our friend Mark, left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, I don't want to speculate, but whatever had happened in this first missionary experience completely turned Mark off. Scared him. We'll find out in a few minutes. He deserted the team. He said, I'm done. That's it. And I, I want to tell you that that's kind of, in a strange way, encouraging to me. I think I know how Mark would have felt. I mean, can you imagine being with Paul and, and instead of saying, hi, how are you doing? He starts calling people the son of the devil. And Mark's going, whoa, what have I gotten into here? So he leaves and goes back to Jerusalem from that upper area of the curve of Asia Minor. Now, after the drama of this first trip and Mark decides to desert the missions trip and return to Jerusalem, some things start to happen. By the way, that's the most, one of the most significant events in New Testament history, as you'll see in a minute. It actually worked for the spread of the gospel. It split, it's going to split Barnabas and Paul up to go and have further impact. After Mark's humanitarian mission to Jerusalem, he accompanies Barnabas and Paul to Antioch, then to Cyprus, and then Mark bails out at Perga, which is a city in Pamphylia. Now, fast forward. 
Paul's second missionary journey. Supplies are being gathered. Teams are being chosen. People are being vetted. Who's going to go on Paul's second missionary journey? And now Mark is going to become a central figure in a drama that's going to happen between Barnabas and his cousin and Paul, the great apostle. Look at chapter 15, Acts 15. Luke allows us to (laughs) eavesdrop on this. Luke, excuse me, Acts 15, verse 36. Getting ready to go on the second missionary journey. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Great follow-up, great discipleship. Barnabas wanted to take John called Mark along with them also. You know, Barnabas, the son of encouragement, you just gotta love Barnabas. You gotta love Barnabas. He wanted to give Mark a second chance. And lest we think that Paul was somehow sinless, but verse 38, Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had, keyword, deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. At some level, Paul was holding a grudge. Paul said, you had a chance and you blew it. We put you on the field and you fumbled. Verse 39. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement. The Greek has the idea of a a volume-infused argument that they separated from one another. This was so divisive. Paul was so frustrated with Mark's desertion and Barnabas was so committed to seeing Mark restored that they ended up parting ways. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. Taking Paul, excuse me, Paul taking Mark on this second missionary journey was not going to be an option. You had your chance, and I'm not giving you another one. It was the proverbial hill that he died on. I won't take Mark. Barnabas said, I will. His cousin. Mark's cousin, Barnabas, the gentle encouraging shepherd gives Mark a second chance. When you read the book of Acts, learn to love my friend and yours, Barnabas. And then Mark's gone. He disappears from the pages of the book of Acts. So what happens to Mark? He disappears there and then he wrote a gospel. How how did that happen? Well, we're going to have to patchwork some things together into a quilt that will understand how Mark came to write this gospel. It's going to take a little work, though, so follow along closely. First of all, fast forward a few years to Rome. Paul is under house arrest. Remember, Paul was under arrest twice in Rome. The first time under house arrest where he could receive guests and visitors, probably under a Roman guard who was standing in the room with him. It makes sense when you hear him talk about the armor of God in Ephesians 6. that He was probably looking at a, at a soldier and describing that armor. Turn to Colossians chapter four. We're gonna be flipping around a little bit this morning, but this is important to see. Colossians chapter four. I want you to listen to something that happened, something significant changed from the moment that Paul said no to Mark, you're a deserter, to the end of Colossians. It's a few years later, Paul is in Rome under house arrest. He's closing up his letter to the church at Colossae in chapter four, Colossians four, verse seven. He says this, as to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bond servant in the Lord will bring you information. He goes on telling the Colossians, I have sent him to you for this very purpose 
that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. And with Onesimus, our faithful, beloved brother, who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. Before we read verse 10, last time we saw Paul talking about Mark, he was saying, no way, no how, he's a deserter, I won't take him with me. And then we read this, verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings. And also Barnabas' cousin, Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. There's a lot there. It's likely that Paul had been somewhat vocal about Mark. And people were suspicious of him. Was he going to finish? Paul had to give specific instructions that if you receive Mark, you should as a faithful servant of Christ. Mark is sending greetings with Paul, which means Mark is with Paul, either imprisoned with him or one that, that was allowed to come and visit and come in and out of the house rest with Paul, which would tell us he's not ashamed to be associated with Paul, which was likely going to be a capital offense, as we know, in a few years. So Paul writes from this watchful threat of a Roman guard. Mark is there with him, sending greetings to the church at Colossae, either as a fellow prisoner or one who's not ashamed. Now fast forward to the end of Paul's life. His second Roman imprisonment, now he's in that Mamertine prison. We took a, a group um, on a Reformation tour uh, last year and were able to visit Rome. And several of us, 26 of us, stood in the Mamertine prison just off the Forum of Rome where Paul would have been held. It was a small dungeon hewn out of, of solid stone with, a, with a, a hole in the top that they would drop food and supplies. And that was the only way that a prisoner could find his way into that prison was to be dropped, oftentimes breaking their legs. That's where Paul is. 2 Timothy 4. It's Paul's swan song. It's the end of Paul's life. Paul is under arrest and likely waiting his execution at any time. And he's telling Timothy, who's the pastor at Ephesus, 2 Timothy 4 9, make every effort to come to me soon. We find out about another deserter for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark, and bring him with you, Timothy, for he is useful to me for service. How did Mark change from the goat deserter and unfaithful missionary to someone who stuck with Paul in his imprisonments and as a man, Paul wants to be with him as he's facing execution? He wants Mark to be one of the last earthly faces he sees. How did that happen? There's an answer in a little phrase, in a tiny phrase, tucked away in the next to last verse. You have to see this, of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter's closing this epistle to this suffering church, meaning he was experiencing his own level of persecution. 1 Peter 5.13, Peter writes, He who, she who is in Babylon chosen together with you sends you greetings and so does my 
son, Mark. Where did Mark go when he disappears in the book of Acts? He went with Peter. He became the spiritual son and traveling missionary of the apostle Peter. Why is this important? Think about it. Can you imagine anyone in the history of the Christian faith who might be able to help a believer recover from failure to the Lord more than Peter? You think Peter knew what it was like to not desert the apostle, but to desert the Lord? Do you think Peter knew what it was like to be restored? Just listen, Luke 22, having arrested Jesus, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. After they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard, had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them and a servant girl, seeing Peter as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him, said, this man was with Jesus too. But Peter denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. Later another saw him and said, You are one of them too. But Peter said, Man, I am not. After about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man, Peter, was with Jesus, for he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. That verse has always intrigued me. This third denial, at least the third denial of Jesus, of Peter, happened within Jesus' earshot. Because he turned and looks at Peter as he's denying him in his presence. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. The lessons here are, are, are just manifold. Peter's failure gave him personal and experiential credibility to adopt a spiritual son reeling from his own spiritual failure. If you go to the end of the book of John, Jesus addresses Peter and three times says, feed my sheep. I trust my sheep with you. He experienced not only failure, but he experienced restoration. When you read the story of Peter and the story of Mark and the story that Peter, the insight that Peter would have discipled his son, Mark, you don't see so much of Peter and so much of Mark as you do God. Our God is a God of, you know, I wrote in my notes, God is a God of second chances. I don't think that's true. I think he's a God of second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh. And how many do you want to add chances? What kind of restoration did Mark enjoy? Well, he was one of the four men in the history of the world to write a divinely inspired account of the Savior. That's how restored Mark became. I just look at Mark and I remember, this is so important for you and I to remember, no one is all one thing. I think in the moment when Paul shunned Mark, he said, you are all deserter. That's, that's who you are. Your entire spiritual DNA strand is deserter, deserter, deserter. But the Lord changed Paul's heart because Peter helped change Mark's heart because God worked on all three of them. And Paul did not keep a grudge against Mark. You know, if I love what our friend John Piper says, if you hold a grudge, you doubt the judge. We do, as believers, we don't hold grudges. We should never have a grudge. I think Paul blew it with Mark. 
I think Paul would tell you that. I think Paul basically admits that at the end. He says, he's good for me for service. But there's something else to deduce here. I think it's important to see. Mark was not one of the original 12 disciples. I was doing a a Bible trivia pursuit game years ago with some junior hires and uh, we'd, I'd made up about a dozen questions and they had made up some. It was, they did stump the pastor, I did stump the students kind of questions. And so I said, um, true or false, all four of the gospels were written by one of the disciples. And they all said, true. False, two of them aren't. Was John a disciple? Yes. Did he write? Yes. Was Matthew a disciple? Yes. Did he write? Yes. Was Mark a disciple? No, but he got to write. And was Luke a disciple? No. He was not one of those 12 who traveled and ministered with Jesus for three plus years. So if you're smart, and I know you are, you gotta be asking the questions, then how did he get all this detail? Where did he learn these stories and these teachings and these sayings? Where did he learn all that he had to write about Jesus? And the answer is, drum roll, from his spiritual father, who? Peter. Just to show you I'm not making that up, in 140, AD 140, Papias wrote that Mark is the report, quote, and teaching of the apostle Peter. End quote. Some believe that Peter may have even edited the document with Mark as he was penning it. We don't know that for sure. What we do know is this. This deserting failure became a faithful follower of Christ and was given the privilege of writing a scroll about the Lord Jesus that would be captured and in, in an amazing unlikely providence be a part of the canon of scripture. That should lead us to a second question. What's unique about Mark's gospel? Now you can ask this about all four gospels. They all play different roles in the telling of the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus, the story of the gospel. What's unique about Mark? Now I have to do this just, can you, can you bear with me? I won't, I won't take more than two minutes, I hope on just telling you, I have to make you familiar because I know a lot of you are gonna go get commentaries. You're gonna start reading Mark. I praise God for that. Please do. May your tribe excel. But you are likely going to read in the opening pages of these, these commentaries something called the synoptic problem. Anyone ever heard of the synoptic problem? Wow, more than I thought. The synoptic problem is basically a debate among scholars about what order the synoptic gospels were written. Remember that there's three synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And John is a theological treatise that works and functions a little little differently than these three synoptic gospels that are parallel in some sense. And the debate is who wrote first? It's it's almost like listening to a couple of four-year-olds debate. Well, Matthew wrote first. No, Mark wrote first. Well, well, Matthew borrowed from Mark. No, Mark borrowed from Matthew. And then they, then they add, well, it wasn't Matthew or Mark. It was this unidentified document called Q that no one has any, no one's ever seen it. So Matthew and Mark both borrowed from Q, Mark and priority. You're gonna see this. I gotta admit, I had about two and a half pages on this that I pushed delete on on Wednesday. Because how do we answer the synoptic problem? By answering it this way, it doesn't exist. There's no problem. No critics have ever been able to prove literary dependence between the four gospel writers. And if they did, who cares? Listen, if we believe that each of these gospel writers wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit It doesn't matter. But that does help us look at Mark. How are we gonna study Mark as a unique gospel? We're gonna look at Mark as Mark and not consider any suggested sources other than maybe Peter. 
And I think it's important that you know from the beginning of our study that we're studying Mark. Okay, listen, eye contact. Everyone look up for a second. We're studying Mark. That's different than studying the life of Christ. It's different than what theologians call a harmonization of Christ. I have a great uh, book in my uh, library by Thomas and Gundry called A Harmony of the Gospels. It looks at the life of Christ. It lines up all four gospel accounts and you can see uh, why the details are different here and there. It's a fantastic resource. I love that. And there's a place for teaching the harmony of the gospels, but that's not what we're gonna be doing here. We're gonna let Mark sing his song. We're gonna let Mark tell his story. We are gonna be so tempted We are going to be so tempted at places in the first chapter, looking at the temptation of Jesus, to run to Matthew, who says so much more about it. But why did Mark say only what he said about it? Oh, we'll collate some of those details, but we need to make sure that we let the Holy Spirit say through Mark what the Holy Spirit intended to say through Mark. Again, a harmony of the gospels is a worthy study. A life of Christ is an excellent study. I must say this too. We're gonna be taking bigger sections than you're used to in Romans. Sometimes better part of a chapter at a time because they're one unit that Mark uses to say something unifying and significant about Christ. Sometimes, not always, but let me just tell you, sometimes I believe harmonization, you understand what I mean by that? You harmonize all the gospels and line them up as to what happened in what order. Though very helpful, sometimes that can actually disrupt the theological intent of the individual gospel writer. We believe in the the hermeneutical principle of comparing scripture to scripture. But we also believe in the hermeneutical principle of what's called authorial intent, that the author intended something by what he wrote. So we're going to be looking at that intently. Now, Luke and Matthew, the other two synoptics, are uh, the best way to describe it is they're, they're like automotive engineers who pay attention to every detail, every minute detail from the dashboard to the engine of a car that they're building for the racetrack. They are engineers. Mark's the race car driver. He says, look, I'm just gonna take this thing around the track. Follow me as I follow Christ. Where Matthew wrote to a largely Jewish audience, Mark, I think, wrote to Roman Christians and largely a Gentile audience. And of all four gospels, Mark makes the fewest references to the Old Testament. It's interesting. If he were writing to a Jewish audience like Matthew or like the combo that Luke would, he would have done that. I think it's also interesting, Mark does not incorporate many details that would have interest Jewish readers, like Matthew did. Very little, for example, is is spoken of about the, the debates between Jesus and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. A few, but not like Matthew and Luke. Also, when Mark mentions Simon the Cyrene in 1521, He says that Simon is the father of Rufus. Rufus was a prominent figure in the church at Rome, which meant there was probably some familiarity there, probably writing to those Roman Christians. All to say there's ample evidence that Mark is writing to a Gentile audience likely in Rome. So just very quick, very briefly, we're not gonna take a lot of time. We'll come back next week. Look at verse one. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is Mark's title. This is opening salvo. The word beginning should ring very loudly as an echo of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, this is the beginning. The God of the creation of the world is the God of the creation of the gospel. And I just find it so fascinating that he doesn't record the events of the nativity. If you're writing a biography, if you're reading a biography, where where do biographies start? At, at, At the beginning. He says, I'm telling you the beginning, and then he goes straight to Jesus' ministry. If you want to know why, come back next week. The gospel or the good news is more than a set of truths Mark 1.1 tells us the gospel is not a message, it's the messenger. It's not a plan, it's a person. 
The good news is not a set of theological facts. The good news is God incarnate. And we'll have more on that verse next week. We'll note other distinguishing features of Mark as we go through his gospel. I just want to give you some advanced warning that, probably not warning, notice. Sometimes you, you, we're probably going to cover a passage and you're likely to say, does he not know that there's, there's other stuff about this over in Luke? I, I do. I have all four gospels in my Bible. But we need to let Mark sing his song. Let's ask a third question. How should we, these next winners are very short. And how should we navigate the gospel of Mark? Now I wanna confess to you, I have been answering that question, asking and answering that question since last October when we started, when we announced that we were gonna start the book of Mark. How should we approach this? How do we navigate it? And more than any other gospel, Mark follows a, a, a geographical path that is very simple and very easy to follow in three distinct sections. It's like three acts of a play, a perfectly scripted play. Act one is Jesus' ministry in Galilee. He's gonna be baptized and begin ministering in Galilee and we'll see who he was to those people in the area where he basically grew up. That's chapter one, one through chapter eight, verse 21. Then act two is Jesus on his way south to Jerusalem, from Caesarea Philippi in the north to Jerusalem in the south. And as he works his way down the Jordan Valley, what he did, what he said, what he taught, going through the Decapolis, through the, the people who knew and had heard of him and the people who had never heard of him before, that trip is significant. And Mark sections out that trip as very significant as well. And then the third act is chapter 11, verse 1 through 16, 8, and that's, Jesus' Passion Week in Jerusalem. And as I said, it feels as you read the book of Mark like he's in a hurry to get to act three. It's not that the early stuff is unimportant. He just wants to set up why Jesus died, how Jesus died. And as I said, Mark emphasizes far more of what Jesus did than what Jesus taught. There's a lot of teachings in Mark. He spends elaborate detail in chapter four on the... Uh, the, um, uh, the parable of the soils. But he more than any other author says, let me show you what he did. We're gonna be paying special attention to these three themes that cycle through Mark's narrative. Who Jesus is, what he taught, why he died. Think about this. Mark is gonna identify Jesus as fully God and truly man. Mark will show us what it looks like for a fully human man to live in perfect obedience and submission and obedience to God while at the same time showing us what God looks like in a human body. We'll see his unique authority over his creation in the hearts of men and we will be dominated with Mark's accent on discipleship. What does it mean to follow Jesus? So we're gonna be navigating Mark geographically and theologically as we move through. As he tells us Peter's and his story of Jesus. Now that sets us up for the fourth question. What do you expect? What should we expect from studying Mark together? Let me give you four bullets to just maybe jot down and be things for you to discuss in your care groups. What should we expect from studying Mark? First, we should expect to be reminded. Expect to be reminded. What I mean by that is you're gonna hear so many stories that have often only been left in the nursery and children's division of the church. There's stuff of songs we sing in the children's division and we we need to understand those are children's stories that are intended for adults. For the children, sure, but they have meaning for you and me too. You are gonna be very familiar with many of these passages and you need to just go in saying, I'm gonna be reminded of this, but no part of scripture, think about this, was ever intended to be read or considered once. 
even just a few times. Just like your favorite song you sing or play over and over and over, so should the stories and teachings of Jesus never get old to us as believers. So expect to be reminded. Secondly, expect to be surprised. Expect to be surprised. We, we could say this about all parts of Scripture, but nothing in the Bible comes to life with greater color and vividness and detail than a slow, steady approach to the life of Jesus. I was reading chapter one again this week. I'm kind of ahead on looking at, at the first chapter. And I almost started giggling out loud that I was seeing things that I hadn't seen even last week. And you almost want to say, when did the Holy Spirit put that in there? I, that was, it's amazing how much and how deep and how wide. Thirdly, expect to be convicted. Expect to be convicted. Now, this is interesting. As we see the power and authority of Jesus, as we see the holiness of Jesus up close, perceiving his perfections, we're going to see our own imperfections. Understanding in his holiness will give us a glimpse of our sinfulness. One of the biggest questions in homiletics, in preaching circles, is how do you get prescription from description? In other words, how can I read something that happened and know what to do? You understand description, prescription? How does God prescribe me to do something to be a certain way from just seeing something that happened? How, how does that work? When you look intently at the Lord Jesus, sometimes you don't even have to spell that out. His authority extends to every part of my existence. His wisdom applies to every decision I make. His compassion overrides my worst days and my deepest doubts. So even though we're going to be, you might be thinking, well, we're going to be, we're going to be doing Mark for a couple of years here. What, what about kind of telling us what to do and how to live? Just relax. You're, you're, going, to be, you're going to find plenty of conviction in those areas. And fourth, expect to be reminded, surprised, convicted. Fourth, expect to be amazed. Expect to be amazed. Jesus is the most amazing and interesting person to ever live. And to be amazed by Jesus is the Mount Everest of worship. Here's the bottom line. Mark is simply answering this question. Is Jesus worth it? Is Jesus worth your life, your sacrifice, your obedience, your submission? Is he worth it? In Mark's call to understand discipleship of the Lord, he's just making the point he is worth it. And let me show you how. And let me show you why. In his excellent book, titled The Glory of Christ. Peter Lewis recounts a, an experience that he had when he was over in Great Britain. He went to a church in West Wales. And as he was listening to this sermon, the old Welsh preacher concluded his sermon. And as he did, he leaned over the pulpit and asked if he might end the sermon with a personal testimony. Lewis records this sermon, and this is what he says. Lewis writes, speaking of this preacher who was speaking to the congregation, the preacher said, when I was a boy of about 12, I had a great hero. My hero was a local sportsman who achieved the rare distinction of gaining a cap in rugby for playing for his county in cricket. I so admired this man that I papered my walls in my bedroom with press cuttings and photographs of him. I love to talk and hear about his exploits on the field. He was my great hero. Then, in my 14th year, 
I actually got to know my hero personally. He was a keen angler and I used to go fishing with him. On these occasions, I was able to observe him from an entirely different viewpoint and got to know the man, not merely the image. At this point, Lewis writes that the preacher paused, looked closely at his congregation, shook his head slowly from side to side, and with an air of considerable authority, said to the congregation in emphatic tones, and the nearer I got to him, the smaller he became. In a few brief sentences, he sketched the young boy's disillusionment as he discovered the true character of the man whose public image had so captivated him. No doubt everyone in the congregation, Lewis writes, that morning recognized the experience and sympathized with the preacher. But as attentive as they were, they were hardly prepared for what followed. Suddenly, in a rising voice with arms outstretched, Voice breaking with emotion, the preacher cried out, but God eventually led that downcast schoolboy to a new hero. And I've walked with my Jesus for 35 years now. In that time, I have often disappointed him, but he has never disappointed me. I've gotten to know him better. And the nearer I get, the bigger he becomes. Mark is going to bring us nearer to Jesus. And the better view we have of him, the bigger and the better he'll become.